theyeshiva.net. It's one of the most interesting and fascinating mitzvahs in the Torah. One recorded in Parshas Kiseitze, in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Dvarim, which is known as the mitzvah of sending away the mother bird. Or in the original terminology, it's called Shiluach Hakain. To quote verbatim the words of the Torah, Parshas Kiseitze, chapter 22 of Dvarim, Perik Chavbez, verse 6 and 7. I quote, Ki yikare kan sipar lefanecha baderech, bechal eitzoy al haaretz, efroichim oi beitzim, vehaim roivetzas al haefroichim oi al habeitzim, loisikach haim al habonim. Translation, if you come upon a bird's nest, that's called Cain Tzipar. A bird's nest, Cain is a nest and Tzipar is a bird, a bird's nest. And you come upon such a nest on the road or on any tree or on the ground. And you may encounter in this nest what we call a Freichim, fledglings, uh, young chicks, young birds, or baitsim or eggs. And the mother is sitting upon the little birds or upon the eggs. Whoops. You should not take the mother while she is upon the young. What should you do? Shalach te shalach esaim ve'esabonim tikach lach l'man yitav lach varach yamim. Send away the mother, and then you may take the young for yourself. In order, it should be good for you, and it should lengthen your days. Those are the two verses, Deuteronomy 22, that teach us this commandment, this mitzvah, this law, which essentially it has two components. First of all, if you want to capture a bird to raise or to eat, or you want to take the eggs to eat, but the mother bird is in the nest protecting her baby chicks or her eggs, under no circumstances can you take the mother bird alone or together with the chicks or the eggs. The mother bird must be speared. That's number one. Secondly, if you want to take the eggs, even without the mother, you can't do it while she's still in the nest. First, you have to send away the mother, and only when she's gone can you retrieve the eggs or the baby birds. If you send her away and she returns, you have to send her away again and again and again. She could never ever be present in the nest while you fetch those little eggs or little cheeks or little uh, chicks. The Rambam, Maimonides, in his Guide for the Perplexed, he has a sefer called Moira Nevuchim, the Guide for the Perplexed, explains his perspective on the rationale behind this mitzvah. And he says the Torah allows us to eat kosher birds. Torah allows us to eat kosher eggs, even fertilized eggs. But it wishes, as he puts it, to minimize the pain and agony of any creature. And taking the eggs or the chicks while the mother is in the nest could cause her acute pain. She's protecting the nest. She's there to protect it. Taking them away while she's there is therefore forbidden. 
To quote the Rambam, he says, this is, I said, his guide for the perplexed, section 3, chapter 48, section Gimel, Perik Mamches, Meir Nevuchem. He says, the eggs over which the bird sits and the young that are still in the need of their mother are generally unfit for food. When the mother is sent away, she doesn't see the taking of her young ones and she doesn't feel pain. In most cases, however, this commandment will cause a person to leave the nest intact because the mother he can't take and the younger the eggs which he's allowed to take are usually unfit for food. If the law provides that such grief should not be caused to cattle or birds, how much more careful must we be that we should not cause grief to our fellow human being? This is the explanation, the perspective of the Rambam in his Meir This mitzvah applies only to kosher species of birds, as the Rambam articulates in the laws of Shechita chapter 14. And um, it would not apply to any uh, other uh, other kosher, uh, any other species of birds that are not kosher. We also have here the very interesting idea that even the mother want, one can take while she's in the nest. Even if you're not going to take the young, only the mother, which really also contains a very powerful insight because if you take the mother, you're basically utilizing a mother's compassion in order to trap her because we all know that the mother bird could have easily flown away and avoided capture. The reason that she is compelled to remain there is because she wants to protect her young. This is what mothers do. They endanger their own lives for their children. So the Torah is telling us, you're allowed to take a bird, but don't use this quality to trap a mother. Don't utilize her compassion and her sacrifice to trap the mother, which, by the way, explains the strange uh, connection between this mitzvah and the mitzvah of kibbud aim of respecting a father and a mother. Both of these mitzvahs, are the only two of 613 where the Torah offers an identical reward. And the question is, why are these two mitzvahs connected? But we respect our mothers and fathers for their self-sacrifice. And that's part of this mitzvah. Don't use the, 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 the instinct, the instinct embedded in a mother bird to do everything to protect her nest, and therefore she remains put and even as a person is coming close to the nest, she will not leave, even though she could fly away. Don't exploit that form of, of complete commitment in order for uh, you to benefit from it. But even if the person is not taking the mother, the mother is there, I cannot touch the nest. Now, there is, the Chavos brings the famous argument that some believe that the mitzvah is even, what if a person doesn't want the eggs? What if a person doesn't want the chicks? Should they still send away the mother? And the famous Torah Tmima in his commentary on Chumash is very, very critical of this perspective. He says, obviously that's not the mitzvah. The mitzvah is the Torah allows you to take eggs. Torah allows you to take young chicks. If you don't want to take anything, he says, blessed be blessed, blessed may you be. Just leave it intact and the mother and everybody will be very happy. But you're allowed to take eggs. So the Torah says, if you want to take the eggs, make sure mom 
is not present to see you take it. If you want to take the tricks, make sure mom is not present. That's the perspective of the Torah Tmima in this debate. In other words, if you're not doing anything, great, move on. The Torah is saying, if you want it, number one, you're never allowed to take the mother. And even if you want to take the birds or the young, you must shalach to shalach esa'im, only then can you take the children. As I said, the Chavisir brings also another opinion and another perspective. This is the explanation of the Rambam in his Guide for the Perplexed. Other commentators give a little bit of different explanations that the point is to teach people the trait of compassion. It's not just compassion for the animal, for the bird mother, but it's to teach people compassion. Since we're saving the mother from witnessing us taking her young, it teaches people to have compassion. Other commentators say it's about preservation of the species, fascinating principle, meaning if I can take a mother and her whole family, I'm causing the endangering of the species, because if I can do it in my nest, in one nest, and you do it in another nest, and you do it in another nest, a species can be endangered. It's a fascinating insight, very contemporary one. The Ramban's insight that the Torah would never want a species to be extinct and endangered. So even if you could take eggs or chicks, the mother, the progenitor, must remain intact. That's another very fascinating interpretation. So even if I take the offspring, the mother should be free to go be able to find new partnership and lay new eggs. So we have very different explanations. The Ramban's explanation, Sefer HaChinuch, Rabbeinu Bechaya, the Me'iri, the Abarbanel, which all give these different explanations. But what I want to focus on today is a very strange Mishnah about this particular mitzvah in Parshish Kiseitze, and it's a Mishnah in the first tractate of Mishnayis, tractate Brochus, page 33, Brochus Lamad Gimel, and the Mishnah says, and I quote, Ha'oimer al-kein tzipor yagiu rachamecha, v'al ha'toiv yizacher shmecha, moidim moidim meshatkin oisayim. Someone who in the middle of prayer turns to God and says, Wow, your mercy extends even upon a nest of birds. Look how far your compassion extends, even to some minuscule, tiny little nest on a tree. Even there your compassion extends. We tell him, Shah, shh, you silence him. Something inappropriate about this. And the Mishnah continues. Somebody who says, I want to mention your name and praise you for the good things. And finally, somebody who says, In davening, in prayers, we say, We thank you. Somebody says, And then again, twice. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. We are to, that, that person is to be silenced. This is what the Mishnah tells us in Shraktate Brachas. Why? What's the problem? Seems very nice, seems very appropriate, seems very respectful. So, the Gemara, the Talmud, discussing this Mishnah, explains the reason. And the Talmud says as follows. I understand why when somebody says, Moidim, Moidim, thank you, thank you, we silence him. Why? The redundant language can have the connotation that this person worships 
two gods. You have to understand, one of the oldest religions that was extremely popular in Talmudic times is known as Zoroastrianism, right? Zoroastrianism is a faith centered in a dualistic conception of the cosmology. It's the dualistic cosmology of the world basically divided into good and bad. It believes in the duality of the universe. There is a split in the world. There's two separate forces, so to speak, two separate gods. This was a very popular faith, including among many Jews during Talmudic times. So when somebody says loud, Maidim, Maidim, thank you God, thank you God, we ought to challenge the behavior. Why? Because it may have the connotation and the feel that this person is displaying and expressing this uh, dualistic conception of the cosmology that was so popular in Zoroastrianism. Now, of course, if you repeat Moedim to yourself twice because uh, your own feelings that you want to repeat it, you want to concentrate more on the words, nobody's going to silence you, nobody's going to know about it, that's fine. We're talking about somebody who says it loud so it can appear as a uh, demonstration of his faith or her faith of duality, so we silence the person for Maidim Maidim. Okay, we understand that. But the question is, what's the problem with saying that your compassion extends to a bird nest? That's what the Gemara says. I understand. Seems like he believes in two separate gods, or the duality of the world. I understand also why we object when somebody says, I remember your name for the good things, because again, it intimates the fact that the person can only attribute meaning and purpose and divine goodness to things that are perceived as positive. But what's the problem with saying, wow, your compassion extends to a bird nest? So the Gemara says, Pligi Two of the sages in the West, the Gemara was written in Iraq, in Babylonia, which is east to the land of Israel. So when it says in the West, it means West is Israel, Eretz Yisrael, which is West from Iraq. So two sages in the West, which means Eretz Yisrael, argued. Rabbi Yossi bar Avin and Rabbi Yossi bar Zvid. Two Rabbi Yossi's, one was the son of Avin, one was the son of Zvid. First says, Matil kina And the second one says, which means as follows. The first opinion says, the reason why we silence a person who says your compassion extends all the way to a bird's nest is because, to quote him, he's placing jealousy, he's inserting jealousy amongst God's creation. As though, his mercy extends only to a nest of birds, but on other creations, there may be a different rule. And the truth is that the divine providence and compassion applies to every single living organism and indeed to every single existing being in the entire universe. That's the first opinion. So don't discuss, you found one scenario in creation, a bird's nest where God's compassion extends. It may sound disrespectful because... He is creating competitiveness in creation. Interesting. 
There's a second interpretation. What's the second interpretation? He is seeking to impose his finite human perception and understanding on a divine commandment. He is explaining, or she's explaining, why do we have this mitzvah of sending away the mother bird? Because Hashem is compassionate even for a bird nest. And the point of this opinion is that a person should be cautious not to try and rationalize every mitzvah, because then a person is vulnerable and he or she may neglect the mitzvah when his mind or her mind can't come up with a satisfactory explanation to a particular mitzvah. So then, I may not do it. So the second opinion says that he's doing, he's taking every midah, every mitzvah, and he wants to turn it into a compassionate experience so that it makes sense. The second opinion opposes this phenomenon, and therefore we silence the person who says this in his prayers, that God's compassion extends even to a bird's nest. Okay, two perspectives. Again, one is the jealousy in creation, and one is imposing your finite understanding on a mitzvah, attributing it, attributing the value of a mitzvah to the way you understand God's compassion. But here's a very interesting Interesting uh, question. And the question is, the language of the Mishnah is very precise. What's the juxtaposition of the two cases? The person who speaks about Hashem's compassion on birds and the person who says, thank you, thank you twice. Why does the Mishnah peer them together in a single sentence and tells us to silence both of these equally? They're two completely different realms. In fact, the mission doesn't even use the word silence this person twice. If you say that God's compassion goes even on a bird's nest, and you say, maidim, maidim, in both cases you should be silenced. But it's two completely different cases, two completely different reasons, two completely different perspectives. The first person who says, maidim, maidim, the reason we silence him is why? Because it looks like he believes in Austrianism and two gods. The person who says that your compassion extends to a bird's nest, the reason we silence him is completely different, either because he's limiting God's compassion only to a bird's nest and not to the rest of the universe, or because he's trying to explain the mitzvahs according to his finite understanding. In other words, in one case we're concerned about heresy, in the other case we're concerned about a person applying only his rationale to mitzvahs, It's two completely different cases, two completely different reasons. Why does the Mishnah feel the justification and the need to pair them together in one sentence as though it's one thing? Now it's interesting, the Mishnah gives three scenarios of people that say something and we silence them. Scenario number one is, your compassion extends to a bird nest. Scenario number two is, I remember your name for good things. Scenario number two, three is, maidim, maidim, thank you, thank you. The first two actually work together. In both of them, you're imposing your finite mind on God's world, and you're explaining the mitzvah, you're explaining the meaning of things. But the third one, maidim, maidim, is a completely different situation, and yet the Mishnah puts all three together and says, in all three cases, you silence this person. I want to share with you today a very uh, fabulous interpretation by a man known as the Ben Ishchai. The Ben Ishchai was a Jew, his name was Rabbi Yosef Chaim. He was born in 1835, he passed away in 1909, and he was the chief rabbi of Baghdad. Chief rabbi of Baghdad in Iraq, he was also a master teacher and, and rabbi, sage, and a Kabbalist. He was considered one of the great uh, 
spiritual leaders of the Jewish communities living in the Muslim countries during the 18th century and during the early uh, during the the 19th uh, during the 19th century and during early 20th century as I said he passed away in 1909 and he's best known as the author of his famous work Ben Ish Chai and uh, the following insight is based on his commentary in Pirkeiavis chapter 2 and here we're going to change the subject for a moment and study a Mishnah, another Mishnah, not in Tractate Brachas, but in Tractate Avos, the ethics of the fathers, which is learned by many communities throughout the summer, the opening of chapter 2. The opening of chapter 2 of Pirkei reads, and I quote, Rebbe Oimer, Rebbe says, Ezehi derech yeshara sheyavr loy ha'adam. What is the right path that a person should choose in life? Sheyavr loy, a person should choose for himself or herself. What's the right path? That's the question that the mission and ethics of the Father's chapter 2 asks right in the onset. And this is what Rebbe answers. Rebbe is a euphemism for a man named Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince. He was the editor of the Mishnah. He lived in the second century after the Common Era, one century after the destruction of the second Beis HaMikdash. He is the one who edited the entire Mishnayas, including ethics of the Father's. And he has a unique title in Jewish history called Rebbe. Rebbe means my teacher, my master. Even though his name was Rabbi Yehuda, but because of his unique renown and unique influence and impact, he is just called Rebbe. He's like the teacher, the Rebbe, the teacher of the Jewish peoples. He's called Rebbe, Rebbe Oymen. So he asks, what's the right path for a person to choose in life? It's a pretty loaded question. <laughs> what's the right path for a person to choose? What's his answer? <laughs> Which means, whatever path is beautiful for the person who does it. And one more thing, it's also perceived as beautifully by other people. So when you ask yourself the question, what's the right path I should choose for myself in my life? Rebbe says, I have two answers for you. Number one, it's a path that's beautiful for the person who follows the path. Kol shehi tiferes, tiferes is beautiful, harmonious, splendorous. It's splendorous, it's gorgeous, tiferes. Pe'e means beauty, gorgeous. It's gorgeous, it's beautiful for the person who follows it, but that's not enough. It's also beautiful for other people who are observing or perceiving this person's life. This is the opening mission of chapter 2, but there's something very strange here. Both the question and the answer seem problematic. The Mishnah is the primary text, which is the body of the entire oral tradition and law of Judaism. Rebbe is the editor of the Mishnah, and he just throws out this question. What's the right path for a person? One second. Rebbe lived a century after the destruction of the second Beis Hamikdash. The second Beis Hamikdash was destroyed approximately 1,500 years after Moshe Rabbeinu. So Rebbe lives close to 2,000 years, between 1,500 and 2,000 years, after the Jewish people stood at Sinai and received the Torah. The function of the whole Torah is in order to teach a person the right path in life. Moshe Rabbeinu says this many, many times, especially in the last Sefer, Sefer Dvarim, in his farewell words before his passing, I have given you the path of life, the path of goodness. Suddenly, close to 2,000 years later, One of the sages says, wait, I have a question. 
what do you think is the right path for a person to choose in life? But I don't understand. For that, the Jewish people have a Torah. What is more, the Mishnah emphasizes that the person ought to choose the right path. Forget about the first question. What do you mean, what's the right path? You have a Torah. Even the question itself. What's the right path you should choose? What does that imply? Every person should be choosing a path. And now the question is, what should you choose? Right? There's like 900,000 pathways, or maybe I should say 7 billion possible pathways, maybe 7 trillion possible pathways. And the question is, which one should you choose? Is this the Jewish approach? Can I really choose my path in life? And who is telling me I should do this? The Mishnah? The Mishnah is saying, which is the right path to choose? Since when did the Mishnah become so liberal? (laughs) I have no other word. (laughs) As to basically allow each person to choose his or her path in life. What is even more astounding is the author of the question. Who is asking this question? None other than Rabbi. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Rabbi Judah the Prince. The spiritual leader of the Jewish people during his day. He was no outcast. He was no simpleton. He was the undisputed greatest halachic and spiritual authority of his day. He is the editor of the whole Mishnah, which is the most foundational, important text of Jewish law outside of Chumash. It's the oral tradition. This is the main body of Jewish law and tradition. Everybody knows this. It's called Shisha Sidri Mishnah. He is not only one of the Talmudic sages, he is the only one in the history of hundreds of years who has the title Rebbe, which is translated as Rabbi or Rebbe, the teacher. He has another title, Rabbeinu HaKadosh, the only one, our holy teacher. When you say Rabbeinu HaKadosh, our holy teacher, it's not referring, not to Reb Meir, not to Reb Yakiva, not to Reb Shimon, not to Reb Yoisi. It's referring to one person, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. In other words, he was considered the quintessential teacher of Judaism, the quintessential teacher of Torah, the embodiment of Jewish piety, holiness, and morality. If anybody knew that Torah constitutes the correct path for a Jew living, as we say every day in davening every night, which Rebbe also said, ki heim chayenu v'oirech, Yamenu. It was Rebbe. In fact, it wasn't all, this was his life's work. What was his life's work? His life's work was to make this path, the path of Torah and Mitzvahs, accessible to the masses through the authoring of the Mishnah. As I mentioned to you, the authoring of the Mishnah happened around 150 years after the destruction of the second base. The second base was destroyed in the year 70. And Rebbe authored the Mishnah approximately in the year 200, a little earlier, a little later. We know that was exactly the year. And the reason he did this was because he saw that Torah will be forgotten from the Jewish people because of the exile and the dispersion. And therefore, for the first time, he compiled a written text which contained the entire oral tradition of Judaism that they had till that very day, which was a monumental achievement and also a heroic achievement because it was officially forbidden to write down these texts. But he felt, he has no choice but 
to preserve Judaism by writing down this text. How strange is it then that from all people, he is the one who turns to his students and it's recorded for all generations to read, study, and learn. And that is, guys, everybody got to choose a path at some point. And now let me give you advice. What is the right path you should choose? When I would expect, Rebbe would say, you know what's the right path? Open a Mishnayis and read what I'm writing to you. And you'll know the right path. That's what you're doing the rest of your life. Some want to say that Rebbe wasn't talking about practical mitzvahs. He was talking about emotions, internal sensitivities, what you would call midos, attitudes, perspectives, not the practical mitzvahs. But even that's discussed in Torah. The very purpose of Pirkei Avis, Pirkei Avis is not halacha, it's not law. Pirkei Avis discusses attitudes, disposition, relationships, emotions. That's why it's called the ethics of the fathers. And many, many more places in Torah that explore what we call chayvas, Halavavais, the duties, the duties of the heart, the internal ethical approach of a human life are explored in so many places in Torah at length. That's when you are exploring his question. His answer becomes even more astonishing and even more startling. Rebbe says, you know what's the right path you should choose? Choose a path that you consider beautiful. But isn't it true that beauty is in the eyes of the beholder? And one more thing. Make sure that other people consider it beautiful. Really? And what if what I think is beautiful contradicts the Torah? And what if what the street considers glorious undermines the very moral system of Judaism? Is Rebbe really advocating a completely feel-good Judaism? Just feel good? If it feels beautiful, if it seems beautiful, if the people who you surround yourself with say, wow, you look gorgeous, you look beautiful, that's really what he is advocating? So I just practice and I live in a way that feels for me beautiful and comfortable and what my neighbors approve of? Something is difficult and enigmatic. Now, I can understand somebody saying this, but when I see who says it and where it's recorded, these questions become very profound. When I was 15 years old, I was standing one Shabbos, it was after Pesach when we learned Pirkei Yavis, at a Shabbos afternoon, Fabreng in a Shabbos afternoon gathering of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I still remember it. There was Shabbos, Parshas, Tazriya, Metzora, the beginning of the month of Iyer, Tovshin, Memches, spring 1988. And the Rebbe, the Lubavitch Rebbe, learned this Mishnah, and he asked these above questions that I just shared with you. And even though it was quite a few years ago, and I was a young teenager at the time. I was, I'm still young, but I was much younger then. I just wanted to make sure you know that. I could still remember vividly the thunder in the Lubavitcher Rebbe's voice as he asked these powerful questions in the Mishnah. And just the questions touched me deeply. 
because I learned that Mishnah many times, but I guess I never really read it, to ask these questions. And what he was raising was something so powerful and important because what are we supposed to do with this? At the surface, it seems so out of sync, so inconsistent with what we often think of Judaism. And after he finished his questions, I remember thinking to myself, and I guess uh, maybe it's not the nicest thought, but I just thought of it. I'm like, how are you going to answer this? <laughs> like, you know, very often you hear a good question, and there are answers, but the answer is just never as good as the question. They say in Yiddish, the teretz is our teretz, but the kash is better with the teretz. In life, very often, the questions are much better than the answers. And sometimes when you hear a question, you're like... You're never going to get away with this one. Any answer you'll give, okay. That's what an impression the questions made, at least on me personally, standing there and listening to his words in Yiddish. But then I have to say, the Rebbe presented one of the most uh, beautiful, marvelous, and inspiring explanations. And in my mind's eye, I can still see and hear the Lubavitcher Rebbe sharing these moving insights. And for me personally, I would say it reframed a lot of my own perspectives on Judaism. And it planted a seed in my mind and in my soul that I still carry with me. And I've tried to develop and allow to blossom over the years and share and communicate, communicate with others. And I want to share with you one insight that I was privileged to hear that Shabbos afternoon from uh, my teacher in that spring of 1988. The Lubavitcher Rebbe explained that throughout Jewish history, throughout all of the ages, there was always a debate among Jews, great Jews, on the nature of Judaism. And this debate is not a new one. It goes back for millennia. In different eras, in different locations, the debate assumed different forms, different manifestations. But at the core of many Jewish arguments for the last 3,000 years, you will find at the core of these debates a very central debate, how we are to define Judaism. And at the core of many other arguments is going to be this dispute. And it could be summed up in a simple question. And the simple question is, is Judaism rational or is Judaism irrational? Or to put it more accurately, is Judaism rational or is Judaism super rational? What are these two perspectives? What are these two hashkafas? The first position upheld by many a sage, by many a teacher, by many a writer, by many a thinker, by many a great leader was that Judaism essentially was a rational system, meaning it was a system that appealed to the human mind and to the human heart. The constitution of Sinai, as it were, the constitution that was given to the Jewish people at Har Sinai was one that after fine study and introspection could at least, for the most part, be assimilated into the rational mind. Again, after fine study 
and introspection, at least for the most part, can be assimilated into the human mind. According to these thinkers, chief among them was the Rambam, Maimonides, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maimon, who lived in the 12th century, born in Spain, escaped to, uh, to uh, Fez in Morocco, escaped to Israel, and then finally fled to Egypt, where he lived for the remainder of his life and is considered one of the towering figures of Jewish law and thought in Jewish history. According to all of these thinkers, and I say chief among them the Rambam, God provided us with a manual for living that made sense. Not only sense, but perfect sense. And he and others dedicated many writings to show us that this is the case. And that's why the Rambam authored a very famous book I mentioned earlier called Moira Nevuchim, The Guide for the Perplexed. The very name intimates what its purpose is, what its mission statement is. It's a guide for those who are confused, those who are perplexed. And the third section of Moira Nevuchim is dedicated to explain the rational system of Judaism. And the Rambam says this explicitly in the 48th chapter over there. The Rambam also has a Mishnah Torah, his magnum opus, Yada Chazaka, where he codified all of Jewish law. And over there at the end of Hilchah's Tmura, the law, law, laws of exchanging sacrifices, he has an expression and he says that Kol he explains over there that Jewish law, Jewish mitzvahs have explanations. And he says, even chukim, even those mitzvahs that we often call super rational, and I quote, It behooves you to try to find even there a rational explanation, if you can. And he gives some explanations to some mitzvahs that seem so uh, super rational, like the laws of Tamura, the laws of mikveh, and others. Now, the advantage of this approach is self-evident because when I understand a system, my appreciation and passion for it is so much deeper. When I understand the value of a law, I can get excited about it. I can uh, celebrate it. And my commitment will be much more internal and penetrating and enthusiastic. Not only that, I'll be eager to pass it on to my kin, I'll be eager to pass it on to people under my influence because I appreciate it so much. But there was another view in Judaism. And the other view opposed this perspective. And I should say that at some points in history, they opposed this perspective vehemently. They maintained that this view was at best misleading. At worst, it was actually dangerous. Why? First, many thinkers argued, many sages argued, if the value of Judaism was based on my understanding of it and my appreciation of it, if that is what you are emphasizing primarily, then I'm capable of cutting corners or even neglecting some of the mitzvahs when they don't speak to me. If you're telling me it makes sense, it should make sense, it's appealing, and sometimes I look at something and say, I'm sorry. This is not appealing. <laughs> I really don't see the value of it. I may cut a corner. I may cut the whole thing. We have the famous medrash that's known about Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon. 
Shloyma HaMelech looked in the Torah. The Torah, last week's portion of Shoftim, says that a king shouldn't have many horses, and there's a reason for it. You'll take the Jews back to Egypt, which was the primary geographical location where they bred. They did the breeding of the most powerful and beautiful and gorgeous and mighty horses. Another thing is the king shouldn't have many wives. The kings of Yor, like Ahasuerus, thought that uh, they can do whatever they want. And Shleimah Melech said, in my case, there's no concern because the reason for these mitzvahs are not applicable to me. I will not become arrogant. I will not exploit. I will not manipulate and so forth. And therefore he cut corners. So they said, look, somebody as great as Shleimah Melech cut corners. Sometimes they argued, my mind can also play games with me. Sometimes someone may pose powerful questions and I won't have an answer. And it won't make sense anymore. I thought it made sense. Somebody poses powerful questions and what happens? I don't have an answer. I lose my connection. I say, that's it, okay. If it doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense. If the prerequisite of Judaism is that it must make sense to me when something doesn't make sense, I may cast it out of my life. And before I know it, I may end up with nothing. And the truth is, this is not just theory. It happened often in Jewish history. For example, in the 18th and 19th century, not very long ago, just a few hundred years ago, many Jews, when the walls of the ghettos in Europe started to come down as a result of the Enlightenment movement and the French Revolution, after uh, the 1780s and the 1790s. So what happened was, Jews began choosing different mitzvahs, choosing the mitzvahs that resonated with them, that they felt that they can explain it to themselves and their people in a modern world, in what they called a progressive world, and they neglected others which they thought are either not so important or were too antagonistic, or were too problematic. And what happened? A generation or a few generations later, Judaism was almost completely lost by their families. Take a man like Moshe Mendelssohn. Moshe Mendelssohn, Moses Mendelssohn from Berlin, is considered the father, or one of the fathers of Jewish Haskalah, Jewish Enlightenment. Personally, Moshe Mendelssohn, who was celebrated in Germany in the 18th century as one of the greatest philosophers was personally an observant Jew. I'm not sure he missed a mincha. But his focus was rationality. Rationality. He wrote a commentary on Chumash, commentary in German, a beer on Chumash that Moshe Mendelssohn wrote, and it was quoted by even contemporary great rabbis, Rabbi Akiva Eger, in Meseches Megillah quotes the commentary. But what's the truth about Moshe Mendelssohn? He had five children, and all of them converted to Christianity. All of Moshe Mendelssohn's children. So this was a very different perspective. Look at the dangers of the mind. They had another argument. And the other argument was, rationality is subjective. It's always subjective, or at least often subjective. What makes sense to me doesn't make sense to you. What makes sense in one generation becomes senseless, in another milieu, what is moral in one time becomes immoral in another time. We don't have to look far. In one generation, abortion is perceived as murder. 
One generation later, abortion is perceived as the embodiment of feminine freedom. And to oppose it, and to oppose it may destroy your career forever. Because what you are trying to do is revert back to the middle and dark ages and superimpose your fanatical values on women who should be entitled to dictate what happens to their own bodies. What in one generation was considered abhorrent and inconceivable that a mother should do to her developing fetus, even if there are challenges, in another generation is seen as the expression of freedom and openness and love and kindness. In one generation, a certain lifestyle was considered completely immoral, and in another generation, it's almost hip. Rationality is very subjective. So the argument is when Judaism is based on a rational explanation, in each generation, culture changes, perspective changes, technology changes. I have to reinvent the wheel and come up with a new explanation for Judaism. Because what speaks to me today may be irrelevant for my children tomorrow or for my grandchildren the next day. So the explanation of today becomes irrelevant and now we have to reinvent a new explanation. And then they said, there's a third part, there's a third perspective. And uh, I guess it can best be encapsulated by a statement of the Kotzke Rebbe who said in Yiddish, and he said, Agot was yede tipes sruche ken fashtein, vel ich nish dinen. How do I translate that? Uh, I don't know if I can give the literal translation, but I'll try my best. A God that every putrid seed can fathom is not a God that I will worship. And basically what he was saying is the human brain comes from somewhere. Comes from a seed and an egg. Remember its limitations. A God that can be reduced to the sperm of life that produces the human brain or that produces the brain of the bee or the brain of the mosquito or the brain of the frog or the brain of the salamandra. So my brain is more, is bigger more sophisticated, even more sophisticated than the chimpanzee's brain, quite more sophisticated. It's Ozine, but it's a finite brain. So a God that's being reduced to that brain, I'm not, I don't want to worship such a God. <laughs> By definition, that's not a God I want to worship. That's worshiping, that's worshiping myself. That's not worshiping God. So the third view was, who in their right mind can think that they can understand the divine mind and the divine purpose. If Torah is divine, and both sides, of course, agree that Torah is divine, the argument was not about that, how can you even understand it? The entire endeavor seems foolish, like a worm trying to understand the string theory, or like a mosquito trying to understand the black hole, like some reptile trying to understand even the Milky Way. It seems foolish. This view maintained that the best explanation for Judaism was that it was God's blueprint for life. Human logic and sensibility can only distract you. 
It can only distract you from the meaning of a mitzvah and reduce it to a small, minute concept that completely doesn't capture the truth, the magnitude, and the infinite depth of the mitzvah. It would literally be reducing the Atlantic Ocean to a single cup of water, taking the cup of water and say, here is the Atlantic Ocean. That's what you're doing. Imagine, we want to go to the Atlantic on a cruise, and no, 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 I'll bring you the Atlantic to your house. And I fill up a cup of water, here's the Atlantic Ocean. Okay. How can you do such a thing? That's what you're doing when you're trying to explain the mitzvah. Even if I could find a nice explanation for the mitzvah, how much does it really capture of its ultimate meaning that it's really God's idea? So when you read through Jewish works throughout history, philosophers in the world of philosophy, machshava, musr, hashkafa, kabbalah, we read through all different works of hundreds of rabbis, philosophers, thinkers, sages, you will see this stream, you will see this stream, you'll often see intense debates between them. As I said before, sometimes very fierce, sometimes very powerful words are used. You'll be able to pick up these approaches. Until today, this debate is pretty fierce. Because there are still different approaches. And you'll sometimes hear from some teachers one approach, and from others one other approach. Some books follow this approach, at least more in, in a more dominant way, and some in a more dominant way. There are many different types of schools, different types of educational systems, pedagogical methods. How do I communicate to children? How do I communicate to teenagers? How do I communicate to young adults or older adults? How should Judaism be taught, be communicated? Now comes the Benish Chai and says, now you'll understand the juxtaposition of the Mishnah. Remember the Mishnah in Brachas 33 spoke about two groups of people. Those who say that God's compassion extends even to a bird's nest. And those who scream, Maidim! Maidim. And the Mishnah says, Meshatkin Both of these people should be silenced. The Mishnah is not just peering together two distinct groups of people that don't have to do with each other. We would call in Yiddish, Ayavan and Sukkah, peering together two things that are disconnected. Rather, it's subtly highlighting the opposing two philosophies in Judaism. And here we see the untold depth of sometimes a single halacha just seems like a very simple statement. This statement is really a very subtle embodiment, which the Mishnah always does, very subtle, very brief, very concise, of two completely different philosophies in Judaism. The first group represents one theology. This theology is the one that really believes that every mitzvah has to make sense. So if there's a mitzvah, to send away a mother bird before you want to take the eggs, we think about it and we say, wow, that's compassion, that's sensitivity, that's called empathy. The worst thing for a mommy bird is to be able to be there as you go into the nest, take your hands and retrieve those eggs. That is an act of cruelty. So basically, God is telling the Jew, I want you to be compassionate. That's very sensible. It makes sense. We like it. Everyone sitting here likes this, right? 
It's nice. It gives you a warm feeling. Makes you feel that Torah is humane. It's sensitive, especially that I'm speaking to a bunch of mothers. <laughs> so you know about mothers' feelings to children. And the Rambam says, and by the way, don't think that just because they're animals, mothers don't have those feelings for children. That's what he says. Don't think just because they're birds or animals, mothers don't have feelings for children. Don't ignore that. That's what Maimonides writes over there. So when a person gets up by davening and he says, your compassion extends to a nest of birds. What is it? It's highlighting a philosophy. What's the philosophy? The philosophy is mitzvahs are humane. Judaism appeals to the heart. It appeals to the mind. This must be my goal with every single mitzvah. Find the compassion. Discover the sensibility. Seek out the logical and emotional appeal. Make it feel good. Make it look good. Present it in a way that people say, Ah, I like it. I like it. You could be enthusiastic about it. That's philosophy number one. But then there's the opposite approach. And how does the mission express this approach? Two words. People who get up and say, Moidim, Moidim. What does the word Moidim mean? The word Moide, of course, means thanks, but it comes from the word Haida'a. Moide, which means submission, surrender, acquiescence, yield to, when you yield to something, defer to. The translation of Moidim as thankfulness is also the same concept. Because when I express thank you, what am I really saying? I'm in debt to you. It's a way of compensating for what you have done for me. I'm demonstrating vulnerability. I'm demonstrating dependence. I received something from you. I needed you. Thank you is really a vulnerable thing to say. Which is why confession and thank you both have the same root. Yehuda was named Yehuda. Why? Leah said, now I'm going to thank Hashem. Oida. The Medrash says, why did she name him Yehuda? He's the first man to make a confession in public. By the story of Tamar, he says, Sotka, me many. Because thank you is as vulnerable as a confession is. And that is a real thank you. I don't mean you pass me a tissue box and I say thank you, that's not so vulnerable. But to really go over to somebody and look them in their eyes and say, I want to thank you for what you did for me. Well, you changed my life. That's a very vulnerable thing, which is why many people have a hard time doing it, present company excluded. A real thank you is vulnerable. So moidim is rooted in the idea of submission. You say, ich bin moide, I'm moide to you. Moidim chachamam l'rebmeir. I retract, I submit. What's the philosophy of moidim, moidim? That the definition of Judaism is submission to the divine plan. Submission to the divine will. Accepting the wisdom and will of God, which by definition transcends my heart, transcends my mind, transcends my appeal. I'm surrendering to the divine master of the universe, irrelevant of my understanding, irrelevant of my emotion or my feelings. I may see it compassionate, I may not see it compassionate. I may think it's humane. It may appeal to me. It may sit well with me. I may wrap my brain around it. I may wrap my heart around it. I may not. There is no room for my reason, rationality, questions, emotions. These are dangerous or at best distracting 
pathways, at worst, dangerous pathways. And what's the conclusion of the Mishnah to both of them? Both of them. They appear together because they capture the two polar philosophies that many people want to capture Judaism through this. One group screams, sense and more sense and more sense and more sense. Logic, 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 logic. All of Judaism, the filter was always logic. And they will work very hard for this. The other group, stop it. And you know what the interesting thing is? The first one silences the second one. And the second group silences the first group. And what does the Mishnah say? Both of you should shut your mouth. <laughs> the first group screams at the second group, you're crazy, you're fanatical, it's not going to work. It's not going to work in the world. It doesn't work for real people. You're going to be blind and you're, in a dog, you're following dogma and you're indoctrinated and you're in a cult. The second group says, this is what reforming Judaism is and you, everybody's going to end up leaving it, etc., etc. Shh. And the Mishnah says to both, Mashat Kinaisa. So the Benish Chai says, this is a very subtle juxtaposition. Mishnah is not just Stam, Shma, Emoide, Moide, Malkain, Sipur, Mashat Kinaisa. These actually represent two powerful ideas. First idea is, I can understand God. I understand the mitzvahs. I take a mitzvah like this, and it's a paradigm for all mitzvahs. And the second one says, no, 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 no. You want to succeed? You want to be a good Jew? Your motto, your motto is what? Moidim, moidim. It's basically two models of life. In other words, one school would have a sign, Al-Kain Sipri Yagir and another school would have a sign, Maidem Maidem. One Jew walks around and on his or her forehead is a sign, Al-Kain Sipri Yagir so you know who I am. I'm the guy, the logical guy, and another one is Maidem Maidem. I believe in surrender, or the words of the Kotzker, Hagot Vasyedet Tipesrucha Kemfashtein Vil Ichnisht Dinen, or Vel Ichnisht Dinen. So why does the Mishnah say to be silent to both? So what are you supposed to do? <laughs> okay. So Moedim is wrong. Al-Kaitzi Begir is wrong. Are they both wrong? Are they both right? Are they partially right? Are they partially wrong? And the truth is of them, the truth is, like we say very often in Torah, both groups need to be silenced, not because they're wrong. They're not wrong because neither of them expresses the full truth of Yiddishkeit. They're right. But neither of them captures the full truth of Judaism. What do we mean? So here, we have to clarify, what is the Mishnah telling us? Judaism is a divine manual. If it's a divine manual, God's mind, God's purpose... God's will, God's wisdom, God's intimate core, which he expressed in Torah and Mitzvahs, could never be fully assimilated into my finite brain, my finite logic, my finite heart. Yes, the ultimate value and meaning of every line in Torah or every mitzvah 
transcends any rational explanation I will ever provide, even the most ingenious and genius rational explanation of the greatest mind who may live or lived, even if it would be a dazzling insight, and I can appreciate it and I should appreciate it, I'm still reducing the Atlantic Ocean to a cup of water, and it's still a worm analyzing the ultimate depths of a black hole. And therefore, the authenticity of Judaism should never be made dependent on how much I understand of it or how much I don't understand of it. In that sense, at its core, it's super rational, or to put it differently, it's Hashem's Torah. It's Hashem's Torah. It's God's Torah. But that's the beginning of the story. It's not the end of the story. (laughs) That's the beginning of the story. It's the foundation of the story. It's the core of the story. But it's not the end of the story. You know, a building, a mansion has a foundation. But you don't live in the foundations of your home. Any of you do that? Your contractor says, hey, Mrs. XYZ, I'm so happy to tell you. We've been planning building your new home in Muncie for six years. The foundations are done. Say, great, we're moving. You know where you end up? (laughs) You end up in the foundations. But it's not a home yet. It's the foundations. And without foundations, you got no home. Foundations are very important. But the foundations are the beginning of the story. They're not the end of the story. They're not only the beginning, they're the base of the story. They're the foundation. They're the yesoid. But they're not the end of the story. In fact... If it becomes the end of the story, it's a home that is very uncomfortable. It's even a home that could sometimes be the opposite of a home. You could still consider yourself homeless, which means that sometimes if that becomes the end of the story, Judaism can become distorted. And that's a sensitive, sensitive point. Not always, but it could be. Because Hashem also wanted that we should appreciate internalize, integrate Torah and mitzvahs into our mind, into our brain, into our soul, into our heart, into our identity, into our personality. He wanted we should celebrate Yiddishkeit with our human minds, with our human hearts, with our human souls. So most of the mitzvahs, and to some extent all of them, and I say to some extent all of them, contain layers and layers of meaning and significance that speak to the human mind and speak to the human heart. So, Judaism does not embrace the ideology in the ultimate sense that everything in Torah has to make sense to my fickle mind. Because a mind is that. Fickle. It's a good word. Okay, you could check it up. But conversely, But conversely, Judaism does not worship the ideal of mindlessness, blind submission, shunning curiosity, mocking inquisitiveness, uh, denigrating questions, denigrating the value of, of the human intellect and of the human emotion, the value of inquisitiveness, the declaration of moidim moidim, 
We don't think. We don't allow for conversation. There's no dialogue. There's no question and answer. It can sound pious. It can sound ultra-religious. It can sound very, very holy. But it's often an aberration of a very important dimension of Judaism. Because why? Why? Not because we don't trust the truth of God. On the contrary. Because we trust it. And we know that God wants a full, vibrant, and all-pervasive relationship. He wants you to be, as the Gemara says, a shutif, but my seberacious, a full partner in the work of healing the world and repairing the planet. He wants Judaism to become ours. He wants Judaism to become as much as possible. It should become mine. I should own it, breathe it, live it, internalize it, get it. It's not because we doubt the truth. On the contrary, when you're confident with the truth, you know that it can penetrate and permeate the mind and the heart. You don't have to be afraid of honest discussions. And only that allows for a full partnership, for a full relationship, which doesn't only require submission, which is a very powerful foundation, but also invites full, holistic engagement of every single fiber and bone and muscle and tissue and sinew of my soul and of my body. In spiritual language, all mitzvahs, all mitzvahs originate in what we call Ratzon Ha'elyon, divine will. And will, by definition, transcends logic. If you have a reason why you want something, it's not the real will you're in touch with. Modern psychology has reached this discovery in recent years. When you say, I want something with a because, you're not in touch with your true ultimate will. Logic is always a garment that dresses up will. It's always a more external layer of will. Ultimate will, even in a person in the deepest place, has no why. It transcends the why. If you're only discussing the why you did not hit upon, your core self, your core will. It's true by us, because we're in the image of Hashem, because Ratzon is a place that is beyond why. In the ancient world, they used to think philosophy is everything. When Kabbalah came around, they knew that Keser is higher than Chachma. Chachma is logic. Keser is the crown. It's Ratzon. It's above Chachma. Today, it's very obvious that most therapy, most psychology is not based on explaining people why. <laughs> it's getting in touch with your innermost values, your innermost convictions, your innermost needs, your innermost wills, your innermost desires. They say that there was a professor who taught philosophy and he was giving out the final exam to all the students after six years. And the exam would be a very loaded exam which would test you for six years of knowledge and reading and scrutiny and analysis. And the, cho- the students were preparing for an exam. They thought they'll probably have 300 questions and they'll have to sit for six hours and answer these questions. How shocked were they when they came to the classroom and the professor hands out the papers and they take a look at the exam and it consists of one question and the question consisted of one word. And the word was Why? Why? The ultimate question of philosophy, why? 
know, what would you answer? So the students sat for hours and hours writing dissertations, doctorates, books, long essays to answer the great why. And everybody failed the exam. Only two students passed the exam. One got an A and one got an A+. The one who got A, he wrote one word. Why? And his answer was, because. He got an A. But then there was another student, and he wrote, why? Why not? He got an A+. (laughs) You see the difference? The first one was good, but he was still trapped in the world of because. And the other one said, why not? The whole why itself is a new creation. It's a new identity. Logic is not at the core of anybody's existence. So when you speak about the world of Ratzin, it's really beyond intellect and it's fascinating. When you say to me, this is what I want, and I say, why? Or your kid says, this is what I want. Or your husband, your wife says, this is what I want. Why? And you can already say the why. I promise you it's not what you want. It's the mitigated, filtered, contracted, compromised form of will that surrenders to logic and now assumes the garment of logic. When you strip all the layers and all the pieces and defense mechanisms are gone and the core comes out, it's because. It's because this is who I am. It's because this is what I want. But why? Because, or better, why not? I'm not in that world. And this insight, which is now literally at the cutting edge of psychology, Mamish, as we speak, these last years, in, in, in Kabbalistic and Hasidic spirituality, is a very powerful theme when we speak about Torah mitzvahs. It's not that the questions are dangerous or distracting. It's much deeper than that. It's you're not even talking about the truth of the mitzvah. The most intimate thing your spouse can tell you is, I have no reason. This is who I am. And when I can trust you, I don't need to give you a reason. Because I can trust you with me. When I can't trust you with me, I have to give you reasons. Because I need to make it work for you. But when I can trust you with me, I don't give reasons. I don't have to give reasons. Just like for me, I don't give reasons. Because this is who I am. Does anybody understand what I'm talking about? Because you know, if I would be talking to men, I would like have to explain this for three hours. It's like, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. There's always a why. No, no. There's always a why when you live in a world of defense mechanisms. In the real intimate self. So if I trust you, the reason is only a, not only a distraction. It's not about dangerous. It's much deeper. It's much more subtle. It's not it. So the truth of Torah, the truth of mitzvah is rots and ha'elyan. And Ratzin is, this is who I am. Hashem says, this is who I am. This is my core. This is our relationship. But that's the beginning, it's not the end. Then God dresses up the pure, unfiltered, undiluted will in the garments of intellect and logic. So the pure mitzvah will now descend through the venues of logic. In each world, as the mitzvah descends, it assumes the venues of logic of that world until it reaches our world with the sensibilities of our world. That's the system how it works. 
And in many ways, we should also add, and I think this is quite important, that this also saved the Jewish people and Judaism from something very, very dangerous. Because faith that is completely divorced from an internal compass of reason and emotion, faith that really doesn't acknowledge any of that, if there's no empathy and sensitivity in it, it could become very dangerous. It could become very distorted. It could become cultish and dangerous. When you're stripped from all critical thinking, when your all investigation is discouraged, you can become, I don't know how to say this nicely, an insane zealot. There's no parameter. There's no parameter. And anyone who wants to speak to you, oh, you're the heretic. You're the apicurus. Because what happened? Your humanist died. And God just becomes an excuse for sometimes insane acts, senseless and cruel, which have very little to do with truth. That's why the Pasuk says, Its pathways are pleasant, and all of its roads are peaceful. Why? Its pathways are the pathways of God. I don't care if it's pleasant or not. Because Proverbs is telling us, that this is the guiding light for the sages in each generation. In fact, it became the foundation of many halachas. The Gemara analyzes in Masechah Sukkah what a hadas is. Anaf eitz avais. Torah doesn't say a hadas. Hadas is a myrtle. Anaf eitz avais is what? A branch that looks like it's interwoven and it's interlaced. And the Gemara says that that's more likely a hirduf, which is called uh, oleander. Oleander? And the Gemara says, it can't be. You know why? Abaye and Rava. Because it's poisonous. And it says, Torah wouldn't want you sukkahs hanging out for seven days with a poisonous plant. How do they know? Because it says, Rashi says, it's poisonous. It's not truthful and it's not peaceful. That's why they understood that when a law cause deep agony, every possibility had to be sought to alleviate pain and discover the proper interpretation of Torah because God wants people to be happy, to feel the goodness of it. It never became stripped from deep emotion and sensitivity. There's a mission in Tractate Makais that a supreme Jewish court that executes somebody once in seven years is called chavlonis, destructive. Chavlon, Chavlon in Hebrew today is called a terrorist, but it means destructive. Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah says, once in 70 years they're called destructive. Rabbi Akiva and Abtarfin said, if we were in the Jewish Supreme Court, nobody would have ever been executed. And Rabbi Shem Gamliel says, basically you will be causing more people to murder. He was against what they said. But what, what do you mean? The Torah mandates the death penalty for capital, certain capital crimes. How could Rabbi Akiva say, nobody will ever die because I'm in the Supreme Court? That's called an objective judge? How could Rabbi Elizabeth Nazai say, once in 70 years is already too much? Or once in seven years? How can they speak like this? The answer is because Jewish judges never became killers in the name of God, in the name of Torah. Compassion and love were at the core, at the core of this life, of Torah life. So we now bring it full circle. Is Judaism rational? (laughs) Or is Judaism super rational? What is it? 
So we now have the classic Jewish answer. It's neither. <laughs> or it's both. But what do you mean? Is this semantics? No, we have to introduce a third word. The third word is called truth. It's truth. That's the key. Judaism is about truth, the ultimate truth. Now I ask you a question. Is truth rational or is truth super rational? Is truth logical? Is truth rational or is truth super rational? What's the answer? The answer is by calling it one or the other, you're compromising what it is. It's truth. That's what it is. Truth transcends my logic very often. How much do I know about tr- about the world? <laughs> How much do I know? I'll tell you a very, very deep story. The Balatanya at one of the weddings of his grandchildren had a batchen. You know what a batchen is, yeah? Like a jokester. But he was actually a very deep batchen. And he had to do batchonis. He had to make jokes in front of the Balatanya, in front of the Alter Rebbe. And he was too, uh, too, uh, anxious. So he had a couple of, he had a couple of lechayims at the wedding. So he would be a little freer. So the Alter Rebbe, the Baltanya is sitting there and he begins. And he says, Rebbe, after long contemplation, I realized there's almost no difference between you and me. Everybody was like, wow, shock. He said, I'll tell you why. What I know, you also know. What you don't know, I also don't know. So what's the difference? There's a few things that you know, and I don't know. You get it? What I know, you know. What you don't know, I also don't know. So what's the difference? There's a couple of things that you know, and I don't. But now I ask you. I ask you, Rebbe, he says, how do you compare what you do know relative to what you don't know? It's infinite. So what's the difference between you and me? And when he said that, the Rebbe started to cry. The Balatanya started to cry. When he said that line, there's things you know that I don't know, but how do you compare that with what you don't know? So to call truth rational is the worst thing you can do from a rational perspective. (laughs) Truth is truth. But to call truth not rational That's an equal aberration of truth. Why is it not rational? If it's really, really true, ultimately, the mind will have to come to terms with it. At least acknowledging it. That's what truth is. Truth doesn't ignore anything. If it's true, the mind says it, and the heart says it, and the body says it, and faith says it, and every aspect of reality says it. Can I ever grasp the full magnitude of infinite truth? No. But so much of truth, I could grasp, I could internalize, I could appreciate. If so, came the Lubavitcher Rebbe and said, now you'll understand the words of the Mishnah. You remember? Rebbe Oimer, what's the right path to choose? He says, look, this is the second chapter of Pirkei Avis, not the first. How does the first chapter of the Ethics of the Fathers begin? Moshe, you remember, 
You have Prikayavas classes, no? <laughs> Moshe received Torah from Sinai. He gave it to Joshua. Joshua gave it to the elders. The elders gave it to the prophets. All the way down to the Anshe Knesset Hagdala. We just traveled, by the way, 800 years. <laughs> Those few words are a lot of years. Anshe Knesset Hagdala were in the beginning of the second base Amigdash. Second base Amigdash was, they were 400 years in Eretz Yisrael. They built a base Amigdash. It was destroyed around eight, nine hundred years, almost a millennium. That's the first Meperik. And the whole Meperik continues how that tradition was passed down all the way to the Zugais, all the way it ends with Hillel and Shammai, who lived before the second base of Mikdash got destroyed. Next Meperik is Rebbe Oimer. Rebbe, who lives after the destruction of the second base of Mikdash, after you finish learning the first chapter about the Messiah, about the tradition, Rabbi, who edits the mission of the oral tradition, now comes with section two of Pirkeyavas. And what does he say? Which is the right path for a person to choose? And he gives an answer. And we asked all those startling questions, how it's seemingly so strange that he would ask such a question and answer such an answer. Of course, Rabbi was aware what the right path for a Jew to live. He wrote the Mishnah. He knew it's the path of Torah. He knew it's the path of mitzvahs given to the Jewish people at Sinai. Rebbe didn't have to ask it. He didn't have to answer that. It's the foundation of all of Judaism. What Rebbe was teaching us is something much, much deeper. And what's the much deeper element he's teaching us? Rebbe says, I want to tell you something else about Judaism. God wants you to choose your path in life. He wants you to choose the right path in life. Part of God's will. The same God of chapter 1, Moshe Kibbutarim Sinai, now I'm telling you something else. There's a right path that He wants you to choose. What do you mean He wants me to choose? In other words, He wants that I should accept it not only because He said so. And what do you need more than that? You need something more than that. He said so. Excellent. Not only because Papa knows best. Mama knows best. That's the beginning. It's the foundation. But following this premise, Hashem wants us to choose by our own volition the proper path in life. He yearns for us to choose Yiddishkeit. How? If I can appreciate it if I can own it, if I can internalize its depth, its majesty, its beauty, God wants me to be able to truly feel and declare, this is so beautiful, this is so sweet, this is so meaningful, so powerful, so deep, so relevant, so healing, so holistic, so wholesome, so cracked. How do I do that? How do I choose Judaism? How do I make the right path mine? How do I make Judaism my own? So Rabbi says, you're going to have to search for something. You're going to have to answer this question. You're going to have to answer this question. What is beautiful for the one who does it? You want the right path? You want to choose it? Look for that which is beautiful for the one who does it. And look for that which is beautiful by others. I have to answer my, I have to ask myself these questions. What are the questions I have to ask myself? I need to ask myself. What will make my life the most beautiful it can be? What will provide my life with the deepest 
luster, glitter, splendor, grace, meaning. What will add the most richness, serenity, purpose, tranquility, calmness to my journey? What? That is the path you should be choosing for yourself. When you look in the mirror and say, how should I live when I wake up in the morning, when I go to sleep at night? What should my relationships be governed by? How do I breathe? How do I interact with myself, with the people around me? What type of family do I run? What type of home do I create? What type of person am I? What does my schedule look like? What am I looking for? Rebbe says, answer these questions. That is the path I want to choose for myself. What will make my days shine? What will make me look back and say, that was the right decision that resonates? What will allow my marriage to blossom? Really blossom? What will give me the most inner tranquility? What will foster the deepest, most powerful relationship with my family? with my spouse, with my children, with my friends, with my loved ones, with siblings, with with family or close people? Or another question, what will help challenge me to become the most honest person? What will help stimulate me to become the most authentic person I can be? What? This is the path I want to choose for myself. And this is what Hashem needs you and wants you to see in His system. Of Torah and mitzvahs. Rabbi could go back and say, which path? Do Torah. Then he's missing the point. That's chapter one. That's why we have in Judaism what we call two words, Nasa and Nishma. Nasa is chapter one of Pirkeiavis. Nishma is chapter two of Pirkeiavis. The Jew said Nasa before Nishma. What's Nasa? Nasa is we will do. Nishma's will understand. Why? We'll do, that's it. What do I care if you understand or not? No. If you believe that you can't understand, it means you didn't touch truth. You just went into one dimension, which is great, but you're missing something very powerful. You're missing the truth, and you're missing so much of yourself. That's why after Nasa, God says, I want Nasa. It's the foundation, chapter one. It's chapter two. Chapter two is Nishma. Rebbe says a new language. We didn't hear this vocabulary before. I want you to choose a path. Really? Yeah, suddenly you got to choose it. And I'll tell you how. you got to figure out what's beautiful. And I want you to see that in Torah Mitzvahs. To be able to see it in Torah Mitzvahs. Then you own it. Then it became yours. This is the Nishma, the Nishma of Judaism. What is more? That's not enough. I want it to be beautiful to you. I want you to be able to go to sleep at night and wake up in the morning and say, this is how, this is a good life. But there's something more. I want you to be able to choose a path that tiferes loymen ha'adam. It will be perceived by others around you as beautiful. Meaning that when somebody else looks at you, they say, what does this person know that's so enriching their life? I was teaching once in a yeshiva, so my students asked me at the end of the year, do you think you were successful with us? Which was a very uh, mature and penetrating question. They were teenagers. 
So I said, I hope I was somewhat successful, but we'll see how things turn out. They say, what's the parameter of success? I said, I don't know exactly. But it would be meaningful to me if you're walking down the street and somebody passes by and they see you and they walk on and then they turn around a second time. And they're thinking to themselves, there's something so beautiful about this person. What is it? That's what Rebbe says. That's the first thing. It has to be beautiful for you. Because if it's not beautiful for you, then it could become about peer pressure. And that's the worst thing for healthy Judaism. Beautiful to you. But when something is beautiful to you, people feel an energy. They want to know what happens in your home. What's happening in your heart? What are your attitudes? How do you deal with your toxicity? With your traumas? With your insecurities? How do you deal with difficult relationships? How do you deal with challenging children? How do you deal with challenging people around you? How do you deal with How do you deal with your own stuff? Present company excluded. I'm just talking about me. There's something here. There's a beauty. There's a splendor. There's a richness. You're not senile. You're not in la-la land. Sometimes you see people that are just in la-la land. Fine. You know, if you're living in a spaceship on the moon, it's great. But I see you're grounded. What is this? Tiferes loymina adam. Rebbe says, I want that another person should feel it. They should be able to explain, this is beautiful. I wish I can have this. This is the type of Judaism. God wants you to study, discover, learn, and teach yourself, and teach your loved ones, and teach your students. So this is a Yiddish guide that is presented not only as truth, but because it's truth, it's something that somebody will choose. If Yiddish guide is only it's true, God wants, but it's not something you choose. Rebbe is teaching us a revolutionary lesson. Something is lacking. Something is lacking. There's something off. You got to the beginning, you secured the foundation. But if you live in a foundation, you're sometimes living in a hole in the ground. Without that foundation, you have nothing. Build a house without a foundation the house will fall like a house of cards. That's the mistake of Judaism that doesn't have this foundation of Nasa, that doesn't have the foundation of truth, doesn't have the foundation of Ratzon Hashem. But just getting up and screaming, Maidim, Maidim, is very powerful and very important. But if it stops there, you didn't capture the full story. Just as if you get up and say, Wow, your compassion goes to a nest of birds. It's all so sensitive and empathetic and it seems so beautiful to me. And here again, you really did not capture so much of the truth. We want you to celebrate the truth of Judaism, the divinity of Judaism with your full personality and with your full, with your full consciousness. Gary Turgo is a friend of mine. He is a Torah observant Jew who lives in Detroit, studies Torah daily, lives a Jewish life. One of the great pillars of the Jewish community in Detroit and Michigan. He's also the chairman of Chemical Bank in Midland, Michigan. If you're moving to Midland, Chemical Bank is the bank. 
Some time ago, I was in Detroit for a Shabbaton with partners of Torah. And for lunch, I was sitting near Gary Turgo, and he shared with me this personal story that happened to him himself. Listen to this. One day, Gary Turgo gets a call in his office. His office is located on the 11th floor in his bank building in Chemical Bank in Michigan. On the other line is a man. The man lives in Dublin, Ohio. You ever heard of Dublin, Ohio? Not Dublin, Ireland. Dublin, Ohio. Is this Gary Turgo, the chairman of the bank, the man says? Gary says it is. The man says, I looked you up online. I see that you're Jewish. Gary says, that's true. The man says, I want you tell to, I want to tell you that as a Jew, you should be ashamed of yourself. You are a disgrace to your people. I also see online that you used to own a bank and the bank's name was Talmar Bank and it was named after your grandfather. Well, I want you to know that he is turning over in his grave because of your disgusting and abominable behavior. Gary was taken aback. He's actually one of the kindest people you'll meet. (laughs) He's like, what happened? What happened? You don't know what happened? You should be ashamed of yourself. What happened? Tell me what happened. Before you scream at me, tell me what happened. The man says, I am 91 years old. 40 years ago, I built a home in Dublin, Ohio. It cost me $40,000 40 years ago. I took out a loan for $40,000 from your predecessor, and I paid it up every month. I was paying my mortgage every month. I was never late on a payment in four decades. Not a lot of money, $40,000. I paid it up very slowly, very little. My wife died this year. We have no children. She was the only thing I had in my life. Her death shattered me. I became disoriented and confused. As a result, I was not opening my mail. And I missed seven payments on my mortgage. I gathered myself together now. It's been a good few months after her passing. I opened the mail. And I receive a letter. And the letter from your bank reads that due to the lack of my payments, my house is up for foreclosure. I wrote out a check for all the seven payments that I missed since my wife's death. I mailed it to the bank. And I wrote a note. I'm 91. We have no kids. Nobody to take care of things. My wife died. It was a blow to me. I could not function for many months. I'm sorry I missed seven payments. Here are the full seven payments. Your bank sends me, sends me back a letter. And the letter reads, it's too late to do anything. It's a done deal. The house is already up for foreclosure. They sent me back my money. And they said that there is nothing that can be done. Shame on you, Mr. Turgo. Shame on you. A disgrace to the Jewish people. 91, the only thing I have now in my life is a home that I built with sweat, blood, and tears. The house began and it was worth $40,000. It's now worth close to $900,000. And you guys will not have the compassion to allow me to stay in this home. And you're basically going to take 
this house away from me, the house that I built myself with my wife, the only thing I have left. He was beyond devastated. Gary says, I'm so sorry to hear this. Please give me your address, your telephone number. Let me look into the situation. We'll get back to you. Gary goes down to the fourth floor of the bank. That's where the offices dealing with foreclosure are located. He approaches the head of the department. He asks him to look up the name and the address of the house owner in Dublin, Ohio. The manager looks up on the computer their information, and he confirms that the story, as the old man said it, was perfectly true. Gary says to him, just forget everything, okay? Forget this foreclosure. It's over. And let's just stop this whole Misa. It's his house. He has the money. Just let him know that the foreclosure is canceled. It's all good. The head of the department says, I'm sorry. Too late. The mortgage was already bought by a servicer. It's not ours anymore. Our bank doesn't own it anymore. Somebody bought the mortgage. Somebody bought it. It belongs to them. It's not ours anymore. There's nothing I can do. This fellow is going to lose his house. Gary says, do me a favor. How much is owed on this house, for heaven's sake? How much money does this guy own on this house? Take all of it. Look at it. I want you to pay up the entire mortgage, including interest, penalties, to the late payments. I want you to look at everything. Just tell me everything. How much does this guy own? He was late seven months. There's interest. Remember, it's 40 years, $40,000. How much can he own on this house? The guy looks up and says, the guy owes $5,200 on the house. And that includes all the late fees, which was probably half the money. $5,200. Gary says, this is senseless. The man is going to lose a home. Because of $5,200? Are you joking? It's almost how much ice cream costs. It's less than a Sheva Brachas. Gary writes out a personal check for $5,200. He tells the employer, this is what you're doing. Send the servicer this check overnight. I want to buy back the mortgage from them. Tell them I have to buy back the mortgage from them. (laughs) This is how much they bought it for. Send the check Overnight it, I want it back. He does it. Gary now sends a letter to the Jew in Dublin. He writes, the home is yours. All was paid up. You don't have to pay anything more. The seven payments and all future payments were taken care of. You owe nothing on the home. Enjoy it for many years to come. I deeply apologize for the aggravation and pain that this incident caused you. Yours, Gary Turgle. Gary never hears for this man from this man again. No acknowledgement, no telephone call. Life moves on, and he forgets the story. He almost forgets the story. Many, many months pass, Gary told this to me. One day he gets a call. A man introduces himself. He's a lawyer who works in Dublin, Ohio. Is this Mr. Turgo? Yes, it is. Remember the man who called you about a home in Dublin that he almost lost to foreclosure? Gary had to remind himself, time has passed. And then he said, yes, sure, I remember. Did that man get the note that I sent him? Was he satisfied? Did he calm down? The lawyer said he got your note and he calmed down. Gary says, I'm so happy to hear. How can I help you? How is he? Is everything all right? The lawyer says, I'm sorry to say he died yesterday. I am his lawyer. When he got your note, 
he called me up and he asked me to come visit him. And he decided that he wants to change his final will, his tzavah, his final will and testament. He said he wants to redo, he had a will from years ago, he wants to redo his will. You see the lawyer says, Mr. Turgo, he was so moved by what you did for him that he basically rewrote his will and said that the house is going to you. He instructed that you get the house, his one asset. And Gary turns to me and says, Rabbi Waiwai, not a bad deal. for a million dollar home, almost a million dollar home, not a bad deal. You don't do such a deal every day, buy a house for $5,000. Maybe used to, 1900, but not anymore. And the man said that you can do with the house as you wish. He would prefer that you give it for a charity, but you choose how you want to give it, where you want to give it, when you want to give it, and to whom you want to give it. Gary, who's a mensch, says, thank you, and I'm sorry to hear about his death. Tell me, what was this man's passion? It's his house at the end of the day. He wants me to have it. I want to give it to a charity of his passion. That would be a tribute to him. What was his passion? The lawyer says he was a Jewish man, and he loved Israel. So Gary emails the lawyer a list of 10 charities in Israel. He instructs the lawyer to sell the home and distribute the money directly to those 10 charities in Israel. And basically, Gary told me he chose some yeshivas, some shuls, koilalim yeshivas, chadarim, schools for Jewish students to learn. And that month or a month later, they each got approximately $100,000 from this home in Dublin, Ohio. When the lawyer completes the conversation, this lawyer turns to Gary Turgo and he says, you know, I lived all my life in Dublin, all my life. I'm a Catholic. I've been practicing law all my life in this city. I read the Bible every day. I'm a faithful Catholic. I always had one question on the Bible. I never understood it. In the Bible, it says that God shows the Jewish people as his nation. And I always asked myself, why? I never knew. Why? The Bible never gives a reason. The Bible never says, they're this, they're that. God chooses Abraham, doesn't say why. The Bible criticizes the Jews nonstop. Moses tells the Jews, don't think he chose you because you're good and you're great. They're always sinning. I, I, I never knew. Why did God choose Abraham and his descendants? I never knew. He says, but today, now, I know why God chose the Jewish people. After seeing you, speaking to this Jew about you, I know why God chose the Jewish people. And that day, the ten yeshivas, as I said, got their, that day or a little while, got their check for close to $100,000. That's what Rebbe means, which is the right path for you to choose. That which is beautiful for the person who does it and is perceived as beautiful by other people. So Yiddishkeit, Torah, Mitzvah is the path to choose and embrace. Why? Well, there is a part of it that's beyond why. 
as explained earlier. But now there's a why also. Truth is not afraid of whys. It can add endless beauty to your life. Make your life beautiful for yourself and for those around you who will be inspired, uplifted, invigorated, and their lives will be transformed just as yours. Have a wonderful week. Thank you. Oh. Which is why my name is Why Why. That's uh, her credit. I just understood. I just understood. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Regards. Thank you. What is the compassion of taking away the eggs? If you want to eat eggs, you can eat eggs. That's, that's what it is to take away the eggs before they... Like, if you want to eat them. Before they become... Uh, the Rambam actually says that once you send away the mother, you won't even take the eggs. Because uh, they're usually unfit. So he says, really, you'll make, most people will abandon it. But even if they don't want to abandon it, at least the mother shouldn't see it. You're living in 2019 with a lot of food all over the place. You understand what I'm saying? You have to understand food. A huge percent of the population died from famine. Food was one of the most cherished items. Don't take it for granted. People ate anything. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you for coming. Where did you hear the story? I'm curious. From Gary. Which story? The one about the uh, exam. No, because that happened to my Really? Our first year of college, she went to the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. And we come from a small town in Massachusetts. And here she was in this classroom with hundreds of people. And this was her teacher's exam. Why? And she told me that this was the answer. The one, really? The only so it actually happened. Right, was why not? Really? Yeah, and they were okay. to know. Where is this? University of Massachusetts. Yeah, Amherst. Wow. Do you know what an exam booklet looks like? That blue exam booklet? She said people were filling them. Really? Filling them with the, trying to answer the question. Nice. But nobody got it right. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's very inspiring. Thank, Thank you. you. I like your, it's, it's big as you'd be friendly with a guy like Gary. Uh, but I don't know him, but it was a great story. Thank you. Thank you. Like what you were saying now, we also have Torah cooking in this part, and doesn't that encapsulate? Yeah. 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 So that's really the point that at the end of the day, the two positions are not really contradictory. God gave us a mind and gave us a heart. Yeah. In other words, even though there were different of the sages that emphasized different aspects, at the core they're not disagreeing. Like we say, everybody agrees with the other. And when we understand the core of it, they both synthesized. The essence of Torah is the Ratzon beyond Seichel. But Hashem allowed that Ratzon to be manifested within the mind, within the heart, in every world, until in this world. In every world, it assumes the veneer, the structure of that world, and it makes sense in that world. Because we have the world of Atzillah's Bria, Yitzirah, see all the way down, and in this world, this is this one. In that itself, you have Chukim, you have Edus, you have Mishpatim. In Chukim, one aspect of the mitzvah is much more emphasized, even though there too, the Rambam gives reasons. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Some reasons. Paraduma, right? We say is a Chayk, but a lot of it, there's a different reasons for it. Is it all the reasons? Of course not. And then you have Edis, and then you have Mishpatim. In Mishpatim, the logic is very much emphasized. But even Mishpatim, at its core, is beyond logic. Even Mishpatim. So really, both elements are synthesized and become part of one holistic 
reality, which is, which is Yiddishkeit. And in a relationship, it's also that way. If I can really trust somebody, I don't need to give them a why. I can give them the core. You don't have to have a why when you like something. It's just... If there's real trust, if there's real relationship, in other words, if it's, if it's used to exploit or manipulate or a person is unhealthy, it's a different situation. You know what I mean? Because then it could be very toxic. But if somebody is, is, you know, is real and genuine and, and healthy, this is, this is my gut. This is who I am. Like, embrace it. I don't, I don't want to have to give you a reason. We have a deeper relationship. But on another level, if something is my truth, a lot of it, another person can often, you know, appreciate and ultimately grasp to some degree or another. Of course, everybody's truth is not the same. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yes. A lot of atzlacha. A lot of atzlacha. Right. Yeah, right. The Rambam himself asks this question. When the Rambam explains in Mary Nevuchim that the purpose of the mitzvah of Shiluach HaKain is because Hashem wants us to have compassion for the mother bird, the Rambam says that apparently this explanation is mamish contradicted by the above Mishnah and the Gemara. Because the Mishnah says that if somebody says, if somebody says to Hashem in the middle of Davening that you have compassion even for a bird's nest, we silence him. And the Gemara says, why do we silence him? Because basically, he's turning Hashem's mitzvahs into a form of rachamim, and it's really xerus. In other words, don't take the mitzvahs and try to rationally explain them based on your understanding that it's about empathy and it's about compassion. These are God's decrees, whether you understand them or you don't understand them. So the Rambam says, how can I come and say that the purpose of the mitzvah of Shiluch HaKan is for this rational reason in order to uh, display empathy because it's so important to have compassion when the Mishnah and the Gemara clearly say not so, say the opposite. <laughs> and you know what the Rambam answers? The Rambam says, wait, there's two answers in the Gemara why they silence them. Remember, we quoted two answers. One answer is what I just said. Don't turn mitzvahs into just a tool of your rational understanding. But there's another reason, the Gemara says, because matal kinebamaisa beratius, because you're creating a jealousy in the work of creation. It sounds like, oh, on this there's compassion, on a bird's nest there's compassion, when really God's compassion extends to every organism and every creature and every being in the world. So the Rambam says, why are the two answers in the Gemara? Because the two answers are based on two different approaches to how we look at Yiddishkeit. That's what the Rambam says. One answer of the Gemara is based on the approach that mitzvahs should not be understood rationally. In fact, there may not be a rational explanation that we understand. And therefore, you shouldn't say, But the Rambam says, I'm following another explanation. And the other perspective is that no, mitzvahs should be understood rationally. And that's why there's a second answer in the Gemara. The reason we silence him is not because he gives explanations for the mitzvah of Shiloh HaKain. That's not a problem. And that's the philosophy the Rambam says, I am advocating here in the Meri Nebuchim. The reason we silence him is because he speaks only about a bird's nest. And it sounds like on all other organisms, or at least on many other creatures and creations, there is no compassion of God. That's, the, that's why there are two answers in Gemara, based on these two different philosophies. So now what we're trying to explain is that in truth, when we get to the essence of Yiddishkeit, when we get to the core, we synthesize both approaches. Really, both of them are part of one holistic dimension. 
In other words, both are true. Both are, are like we say in the Gemara, Elu ve'elu, Divrelechem Chayim. And the Nasa and the Nishma. Yeah, one is the Nasa and one is the Nishma. But let's also understand that based on our explanation, the Nasa is also understood in a much deeper way. It's not just Nasa means you submit, you surrender, I don't care about you, just do what you have to do, and it's irrelevant who you are. The Nasa is actually the greatest gift in the world. Because when I take a mitzvah and I just try to understand the rationality of the mitzvah, I'm reducing the Atlantic Ocean to a cup of water. The power of the mitzvah is that it allows me to touch the infinity of God. The power of a mitzvah is that it allows me to connect with the Ein Soif of Hashem. The power of the mitzvah is that it opens me up to have an intimate relationship with God's core will and core wisdom that transcends my limited perception and appreciation of it. So even the Nasa itself is so rich, is so powerful. It's not about repression, like I don't care who you are, just do what I say and, and, and your mind is irrelevant. It allows you to go beyond the finite experience of life and the finite experience of mitzvah to the core of the mitzvah. That's the element of nasa. On the other hand, there's also the element of nishma, because if a mitzvah is true, so on every level, its truth will be manifested. And therefore, logically, if I get to the truth of logic, I will be able to appreciate logically the value of the mitzvah, and mentally and emotionally and physically the value of the mitzvah. Truth is revealed from every angle, from every perspective, in every world. If something is true, so the truth of it will come out, the truth of it will, uh, will, uh, there's an expression, it's an expression from the Raubag. Truth, any angle you look from, you're going to find it. In other words, if it's true, if it's reality, if it's the truth of reality, so therefore all reality will attest to the truth, so ultimately, in the world of logic, this will be truth. In the world of emotions, this will be truth. If you want to put it in other words, you could say, if we would have enough time, and we would have enough knowledge, and we would be able to discover truth, ultimately, we would be able to discover how every single mitzvah is really a blueprint for physical health, emotional health, mental health, psychological health, and spiritual health. That is the best thing for a human being. It's a blueprint for living that from an intellectual, emotional point of view, when I look at my life, my body and my soul, every single mitzvah makes sense. Not only makes sense, it's a blueprint for successful living. For this, I would have to have time and knowledge and not be able to get stuck in toxicity and temptation and addiction and superficiality. And that's the element of nishma. So in the ultimate scheme of things, in the ultimate perspective of Judaism, both dimensions become one and are synthesized. Yeah. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.